Michelle Flournoy returns to China Talk. We last did a show in March 2021. A lot's happened since then. Michelle Flournoy has had a long career in the Pentagon, serving most recently as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy under President Obama. She has also founded West Exec Advisors and CNAS. Michelle, welcome to China Talk. Thanks for having me back. A lot has happened. So uh, let's uh, start off with a softball. Um, what is an end game that the U.S. should aim for in its relationship with China? Well, if that's the softball, I'm, a, I'm worried about the hardball. So, <laughs> no, I, you know, I think we, you know, I actually think the administration has stated it fairly clearly that, you know, we are in a strategic competition but the name of the game is managing the competition so it does not become conflict and managing the competition such that in a way that allows us to cooperate in the areas where we have common interests, like you know, preventing further climate change or preventing further proliferation of nuclear weapons, those kinds of things. So it, it is the question is how do we manage the competition in ways that you know prevent conflict and leave leave room for cooperation? But much easier said than done, obviously. We're having a hard time achieving that. Yeah. So so talking about that sort of managing the competition dynamic, um, you know, since uh, 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 Speaker of the House Pelosi visited Taiwan, there's been this move by the Chinese side basically to stop all conversation um, on, you know, anything uh, as sort of like a precondition for the U.S. like being nicer to China. And, you know, you've seen some some reporting recently of sanctions and, and entity listings that have been put on hold by the U.S., ostensibly, according to Reuters, in order to give the Chinese uh, an easier pathway to reopen these channels of communication. And sort of the, the main argument or, or one of the arguments that the Biden administration is pushing forward is this idea that um, you know, crisis communication is really important. And like, that's a thing that would stop World War Three. Um, so I guess my sort of question um, uh, to put like somewhat provocatively to you as you know, someone who spent a lot of time thinking about Abel Archer and, you know, all of the um, uh, the close calls that have happened over the course of the Cold War is like, I wonder how valuable that the sort of like pre big prices pre-big crisis communication is um, with thinking that, like, if there's a big crisis and the Chinese government wants to de-escalate, then, like, they'll probably pick up the phone then, even if they weren't in an earlier period where this is sort of as, uh, as, as more, of a, more of a bargaining chip. I'm curious for your sort of, like, reflections on, on that, um, that tension there. Well, I do think, just stepping back, I think right now both sides are concerned that the rhetoric and, you know, and, and the tension is heated up to levels that neither side really wants right now. Um, uh, and, and so I, I think you'll see, you're starting to see efforts at renewing some dialogue, you know, uh, Jake Sullivan's meeting, for example, talk of now cabinet members starting to meet with their counterparts. Uh, and I think you, we can expect to see some engagement between President Biden and Xi, either on the margin of upcoming meetings this fall or, you know, uh, specifically set up, you know, calls set up and so forth. So I think both sides want to kind of ratchet down the tension. Um, but the, this larger question of risk reduction measures and sort of crisis communications, 
It really is something we've we have tried, even when there was a lot of dialogue, you know, back in the Obama administration where we had this regular tempo of strategic and economic dialogues. And, you know, I used to meet with my PLA counterpart twice a year and so forth. We tried to push the issue then because what the, you know, things like the hotline, things like uh, incidents at sea agreement, these were mechanisms we put in place in the Cold War with the Soviets with the understanding that if we have a crisis that's not deliberate or not you know, intended by one, at least one side, you know, if it's truly an accident or a miscalculation, we need to have mechanisms for de-escalation and an understanding of how we'll communicate protocols to de-escalate and so forth. The Chinese have never been willing to talk about that, even in better times in the relationship. The two things they've said, you know, in my hearing have been, number one, you seem to really, really want this. So if you really, really want this, you, we will give it to you only if you give it something to us that we really, really want, like stop bothering us about Taiwan or stop talking about human rights. And of course, that's not going to happen. The other thing is I've heard um, uh, Chinese interlocutors say, look, if we put risk reduction measures in place, that will create an environment where you're incentivized, you, the United States, are incentivized to, to adopt riskier behaviors because we have these protocols. So we don't want to do that. And so they, they just see it through a totally different lens. And so consequently, you know, when the, the spy balloon incident happened, you know, the U.S. was calling on the supposed hotline for days before the phone, anybody answered the phone. I really, I really hope it's like a literal thing. <laughs> And there's just someone in the room being like, no, not today. Well, I think it's deeper than that. And it's unfortunate because, you know, you mentioned the Pelosi visit, the McCarthy meeting with Tsai. In each of these instances, um, the reaction from the Chinese was to ratchet up the level of military activity around Taiwan and to the aggressiveness. And so we're now seeing very dangerous um, sort of accident-prone behavior from some aspects of the Chinese military that could very easily result in another P3 type of incident. Again, that is something that neither side wants right now. So I guess the question then is like, even if back in 2010, when the dynamic was very different and the, the sort of PLA couldn't see its way around to these sort of crisis communications and, you know, whatever procedures being in their interests, like, is it really worth the U.S. continuing to try to make this a thing? Um, and should the and should America be like, I don't know, um, you know, trading off other policy aims uh, in order to in order to. No, and I don't think the administration has traded anything off and or will. I mean, this is a, something that should be seen as in our interests in its own right. Um, and. So I think it doesn't hurt for the administration to keep saying, look, we, we think this is best practice. We think there's value in here. But I don't think they should trade off other objectives and interests um, for it. Sadly, I think the thing that will move the needle on this is if we actually have some crisis. And it scares both sides, realizing that we didn't have the proper frameworks and mechanisms to deal with it. Uh, in the best way possible, and and maybe that will move the needle. I'm not wishing for that, but I sadly think that that's what it'll take. It'll take something that really rattles the Chinese to make them realize 
we actually need to have these mechanisms in place. So talking about conceptualizing deterrence, um, there's a debate going around around whether a sort of weak China or a strong China is more scary and more likely to plunge the world into catastrophe. We've done a number of shows on China Talk exploring this idea of temporal claustrophobia, um, basically the idea of Japan in 1941 thinking about um, you know, we, we might not have a great chance of um, creating a co-prosperity sphere if we start a war now, but it's going to be even worse in 1942 or 1943. And the same logic can be applied to, you know, the Kaiser um, and, and Hitler when they've done crazy stuff. Uh, so I guess I'm curious sort of how you think about um, uh, sort of Chinese national power trajectories and the risk of conflict. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to focus on Xi as a leader to start. Um you know, he's really moved from a collective leadership model to a much more of a, a one-man rule uh, consolidation of power. Um, and it's very clear that he thinks the days of, you know, hide and bide, you know, don't mind us, we're just a developing nation, we, are, we don't have aggressive designs on anybody, That those days are over. And he's really wants to, you know, see China arrive, uh, fully arrive as a great power in Asia and, and the world stage. I still believe um, that he prefers to address the Taiwan issue, which is the most likely flashpoint, through political and economic means, you know, political coercion, influencing the Taiwan elections, economic envelopment and deepening of ties, shrinking Taiwan's international space, to basically kind of put Taiwan in a position that they have no choice but to sort of accede to re rejoining China in some way. But um, I also believe that he, you know, he wants, he's made it clear that he wants to resolve this on, issue on his watch, whether it's during an extraordinary third term or an ex even more extraordinary fourth term. <laughs> but he doesn't want to wait till, you know, 2049 and the 100-year anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. So, you know, there is a scenario in which, you know, he's frustrated that the non-military means have, have not worked, um, that um, he sees the U.S. posture growing stronger, which it will, and, you know, into the 2030s when a lot of our investments come to full fruition. And he judges that there's, you know, if I don't try now, I, I may not have the opportunity to achieve this goal. And if you add to that, you know, what we just saw with Putin and Ukraine, you know, in an authoritarian system, you have a this untested military, but who's probably not going to be speaking a lot of truth to power in terms of saying, oh, I'm sorry, you know, President Xi, we're, we're just not ready, or we don't think we can win, or, you know, all those capabilities you've given us don't really give us confidence that we can actually seize this small island on, nearby. You know, I mean, I just don't think he's going to get a very honest assessment from the PLA, um, which opens a lot of room for, for miscalculation. Um, so you mentioned this idea of, uh, you know, 2030 and the investments kick in. Um, how do you, you know, conceptually balance investing in near term versus longer term deterrence? Well, I do. It is a balance and it, there are some tough trade-offs, um, but I think the department is very much indexed on the 2030s um, modernization and, and investments, thinking in those judgments were made, you know, two and three years ago. That's unfortunately our very slow budget cycle in defense. But, you know, those 
judgments were made a while ago that we'd have that time and we could um, work on that time frame. I think more recently we've gotten some indicators that she at least wants to, has accelerated a number of key military programs and has asked for, you know, options to be ready in 2027. Does that mean he's going to launch a war in 2027? Of course not. But the fact that he wants to have options by then gives us a new um, a new objective, I think, which is we better be confident in our ability to deter by 2027. And that does require some different kinds of investments. Things like um, shoring up our munitions stockpiles. Um, things like um, really putting a number of the posture uh, you know, moves in place. You know, For example, we've just been given access to four more areas of the Philippines, but Currently, there's no appropriated funds for that. So, you know, how do we actually, you know, use the time we have to to develop those um, accesses? Um, and there's a whole laundry list of things you can read through the Indo-PACOM commanders under unfunded priorities list for a good, you know, uh, encapsulation of that. But we have to do both. We have to do both, and we also have to make sure that not all of our senior leader bandwidth is consumed with the near fight, which is Ukraine. I mean, there's a huge amount of uh, leader attention going to this very real threat to to order and stability um, in the heart of Europe. So, you know, it, it's a tough job. You got to be able to juggle lots of balls at once and make those hard hard trade offs. But we can't completely neglect the near term um, and just hope that it doesn't. We don't. Aren't, we aren't challenged until we want, until we're ready in the 30s. So um, I recently read this book called The Social History of the Machine Gun, and it sort of tells the story of how the machine gun was ready um, basically by the 1870s um, and even into like 1915, 1916, like as as you've already had tens of thousands of people killed um, by this gun um, on the uh, Western and Eastern fronts of World War One, like folks still hadn't entirely wrapped their around wrapped their head around just how much um uh just how much these new guns have changed um the nature of war so i guess i'm curious um you know from a sort of abstract level looking at you know 14 critical technologies and and ai and biotech as well as like what um the us can actually learn from staring at the war in ukraine like how we can do our best to make sure that whatever is the next machine gun um, isn't something that is something that's America's prepared for and invested in. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a couple of answers to that. One is we have got to put some of our best and brightest on experimenting with new technologies and capabilities, developing new operational concepts, or in some cases it's putting existing systems together in new ways that have a different, you know, outcome. Um, but that, that experimentation concept development it can't be a top-down consensus-driven pro process. It has to be bottom-up, competitive, um, creative, innovative, um, uh, kind of a ferment of putting a lot of smart people on some really tough operational problems and giving them, um, encouraging them to come up with alternative ways to solve those problems using some of these new tools. So there's that piece of it. But then, even when you have success in that, you still have the now the famous valley of death. You know, if I if I win a prototype contest today, 
I will not have a chance to be in production until the FY26 pump program. You know, program. Um, so that's a problem. Um, that, that lag time is a real problem. And I think we have to do a better job um, both using the authorities the department already has to bridge the, you know, accelerate this, the, the scaling of those things, but also probably need some new bridge funding from, from the Congress to enable um, that acceleration in some cases. So this is a problem. Um, the last thing I'll say on the budget is, you know, the budget's already occupied with um, legacy systems that have large constituencies connected to jobs in congressional districts and and so forth. And so you have something really great. It's disruptive. The leadership wants it, but trying to find room in the budget, what do you cut, you know, without Congress basically reversing whatever new, new thing you put in, it's, it's a, the politics of it are very difficult to, as well. Why can't there be just like, okay, we'll cut this thing. It costs you a thousand jobs. Like, why don't we just like give you a thousand jobs that are way cheaper than the, you know, $10 yeah. billion that you're getting for these other thousand jobs that are making this tank that no one wants anymore? It's, it's, a, it's a good um, thought. And, and I think sometimes when there's been success, it has been, you know, when the department's been able to offer an alternative um, in the same district and employing some of the same workers, but sometimes that, you know, that shift just doesn't work. It's a, you know, it's a software defined system rather than a hardware manufactured system or whatever. So, but I think you have to get down to the brass tacks of understanding the politics and putting together new coalitions of supporters for some of these more disruptive technologies. Uh, so let's come back to this idea you talked to you talked to earlier of this uh, sort of like taking existing capabilities and rejiggering them in, in new ways in a in a sort of you know, competitive environment that is obviously happening now in Ukraine. Um, I just uh, uh, read an article earlier this morning, this long, um, fantastically reported piece in The New Yorker of this reporter who spent two weeks on the front lines of Bakhmut. And, you know, they literally have both Maxim guns as well as drones that have grenades on them that are being dropped, that are sort of like finding the enemy and then like dropping ordinance on them from, you know, 50 feet up in the air. Um, but, you know, that that sort of innovation, um, you know, it, it happens because lives are on the line and, and there is like a, a you know, a, a sort of horrifically um, uh, a competitive process where, um, you know, the people who don't innovate sort of tactically or operationally, um, you know, to what extent can the U.S. both learn from that as well as try to, um, you know, bring in some more, um, you know, lean to the extent that it's possible into the, the, the more wartime pace of, of, of innovation and operations, which, which is being shown in Ukraine. Yeah, no, I think we are. I think there's an effort to learn a lot of lessons by seeing how the Ukrainians are innovating as, you know, the old phrase you know, necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, as you say, lives are on the line. It's a pretty strong motivating factor to figure out how you can be more effective with what you have in hand. And they've been incredibly creative and and fast with how how they've um, evolved things. But they've also been really good at bringing in commercial technologies that they can grab off the shelf and modifying them and and using those. Whether it's Starlink 
for command and control uh, communications or these little commercial drones that they've strapped ordnance onto and managed to turn them into weapons. So I do think um, we have a lot to learn from that. And again, I think part of this is in, you know, encouraging and incentivizing the services to create sort of teams that could mix both military uh, systems and commercial systems in new ways to take on specific priority operational problems and to really experiment um, with that. You know, it's interesting, one of the parts of the military that does this best is uh, within SOCOM and within SOCOM JSOC because they are in this weird hybrid situation of being both a COCOM but also having authorities to organize, train, and equip like a service. And so they will take hard problems and give people a challenge and they'll go out to industry, defense and commercial, and they'll say, come on, come on, show us what you got. And they'll experiment with these things and get them fielded within a pretty, you know, short timeline. Now, we, we need more of that kind of agility and innovation across the services, but it needs to be driven from the top and incented um, more, more than it's been you know, to date. Uh, you know, uh, SOCOM, of course, I mean, they've been in this, they, they have been fighting for 20 years, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's um, uh, I guess, harder and easier um, to move things fast when if you don't, people die. Yeah. So it, the idea of like cultural or, or sort of like cultural and social change connected to big platforms that have like perhaps outlived their usefulness. Um, another book for you, um, Flying Camelot, um, which sort of tells the story of um, the Air Force and Boyd and and the sort of fighter, um, the fighter jet mafia, which was um, sort of enamored with World War One um, uh, duels in the sky and like ended up probably taking it a little too far um, into the into the into the 80s and 90s because they sort of saw this, you know, one type of warfare as being like the. Uh, I don't know, like the like the greatest achievement or like peak of humanity and and that sort of um, attachment to, um, you know, fighter jet dogfights ended up blinding them to, to larger technological changes and, and evolving strategic realities. Thoughts or reflections on that um, on, on that narrative where you're worried that that might still be um, in effect in 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 certain we weapon systems and how you kind of incentivize um, large organizations to, um, you know, perhaps like divorce themselves from those specific weapons platforms and think more holistically about future missions? Yeah, I mean, there is, there are certainly cultural barriers that inhibit change. People get a very enamored of a certain way of war or a certain set of capabilities, and they really don't want to be disrupted because they've spent their whole careers perfecting operations in a given area. Um, but I actually do think that, you know, I, I see um, signs that at least at the at their very top, there's the leadership, you know, and if you take the Air Force, um, it's no longer a fighter-dominated culture. I mean, it's still, we still have fire, there's still a lot of fire pilots and, and they're still in the leadership ranks, but look at the amount of investment they put in, put into bombers, new new strategic bombers, think, rethinking not only the nuclear mission but how bombers can be used in a theater where we need to buy back range, you know, and even in a tactical fight vis-a-vis -vis 
um, uh, China over Taiwan, for example. Um, and in addition, um, they're also thinking about how do you take those fighters that may still have the range challenged and pair them or connect them with swarms of unmanned systems that can go forward, they can direct and control and go forward beyond the range of the fire into the kill zone and, and have devastating effects. So I do see signs. It's very uneven across the services, but I do see signs that the services are really digesting that um, deterring China, uh, operating against China, if it came to that, in a maritime environment with great distances where you're going to be contested in every domain from space to cyber to air to on the surface, under the water, et cetera, that they're, they, they are starting to rethink this. And it's not just dismissing legacy systems. It's really realizing that a lot of your legacy systems have bought and paid for. They're in your force now, and they're going to be with us for a while. So it's how do you marry those with new capabilities that will create uh, different effects? So taking that short-legged fighter that ne can't necessarily reach the targets, all the targets you want, you know, with confidence, but, but making it more resilient and relevant by putting longer-range munitions on it, pairing it with swarms of drones, you know, linking it to space-based C2. C2, you know, all of that. So it's really how do we give some of these systems that are going to be with us for a while new life by integrating them with more disruptive technologies that are coming online. Um, so speaking of investing a lot of time into a skill which may no longer be relevant, um, have you been playing uh, a lot with uh, ChatGPT over the past few months? Um, not a lot. A little bit of experimentation, but, um, but uh, you know, Paul is certainly tracking the issue. I haven't okay. spent a huge amount of time having it write my my talking points and memos yet. Uh, so, Michelle, you mentioned recently that you were um, interested in exploring how AI can, you know, support and supplement um, humans as they as they make decisions. Where in particular are you excited to to see that dynamic play out? So, um, very excited in some a couple of areas. One is what I would call predictive intelligence. So, you know, when you're in a policymaking position, you're, you know, you're, the world is awash in intelligence, and there's also all kinds of open source information. It's information overload. Um, having some, you know, uh, if you're watching, you know, for if you're command, if you're combatant commander, for example, and you're watching developments in your region, if you can have some a tool that looks at all of these inputs and recognizes patterns that suggests that an event may be coming, that can be really useful, kind of separating the wheat from the chaff, giving you insight. And I'll give an example that I read about. Uh, it was in the press, so I, you know, can be noted. Um, there were, you know, the Chinese are doing a lot of maneuvering in space, uh, trying to get a closer look at some of our most sensitive military satellites. And it used to be that, you know, people watching what was happening in space might have a couple of days notice that one of these proximity operations was about to occur. Well, um, the Space Force and Spacecom and Stratcom have been experimenting with some AI-based tools 
Um, and the tool that they were using gave them over 50 days of warning that this was coming because it had analyzed all of the preparatory, you know, actions that this other country had taken in previous instances. And it saw those happening way before the few days when you could see the maneuvering happening. So that is really helpful for decision makers to, to have more time to think about options to prevent or deter or respond. That's, that's one thing. The similarly, um, maintenance. There's now AI being used for predictive maintenance. So again, looking at patterns um, of what's happening in a system and seeing the early indicators that a part is going to fail before it fits or need replacement before something catastrophic happens. That is, can be very helpful and also very, um, you know, reduce cost a great deal. So those are just a couple of examples. Um, but I think, you know, and the other one is we already talked about human machine teaming. There's a certain amount of AI that's required to give a one pilot a swarm of 100 drones that they can control and direct. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned this idea of predictive maintenance. Um, there was a, um, uh, in, in this sort of New Yorker Ukraine article, they talked about PTSD. Um, and the, uh, the sort of challenges that, uh, you inevitably go through in like, you know, suffering multiple concussions and living with your, um, you know, life in the hands of uh, randomness for days, weeks, months on end. Um, you know, I wonder if there's something sort of like what MB, what NBA teams do with their players where it's like, okay, like if you had enough stress, your injury risk goes up. And so you should maybe like not practice this hard or like take a rest day or two off if there's. If there's something in the psychology of, um, you know, if there's enough data, I mean, there, there must be like enough data that humans push off to um, give you some sort of like predictive mechanism for the mental health challenges that accompany um, uh, you know, combat. I think almost all of the services and the special operations community have resiliency programs where they, they try to kind of fortify people. Um, with various tools, offering various tools and techniques to kind of build both mental and physical resilience. But I don't, I'm not aware of any program that is kind of tracking their, their you know, specific metrics in real time, day to day, to make those judgment calls of, hey, you know, today's a good day for you to take a rest day from, you know, working out or, you know, your physical fitness stuff or, Hey, this is a this is a soldier who actually needs some time off before he's sent back out into the battlefield. I don't. There's such a taboo against sort of not being ready and available when your unit's going forward that I think, um, you know, I and I just haven't seen a system that is tracking it at that level. But I think it, it theoretically could be possible. You know, going with some of the tools that are available. All right. Well, um, future startup um, founder Ideas. to create this if you want. Uh, that if you if you <laughs> it's interesting thinking about thinking about the stigma, right? Um, because like maybe if it is just a number and it's like you know connected to your heart rate variability or or you know how your sleep or this that and the other thing, um, it might make it a little easier um, to sort of take that preventative action. Everybody. And if everybody was going through it, yeah, absolutely. And it was just sort of, this is the way it's done. Um, you know, I think that the hardest thing, you know, the thing we're seeing right now is is a real 
continued crisis with uh, with service member suicides. And there's still a great stigma against seeking mental health help, you know, seeking help when you need it. And so you do see, you know, various communities trying to innovate in how that help is provided. I've been involved with one group called Sound Off, which is basically anonymous counseling support. So it's not a one-off hotline. You get a consistent counseling relationship with a therapist, but you can remain anonymous, like first name basis or, you know, camera off on Zoom or what have you. And um, some of the communities are embracing this um, because everything else just hasn't worked and, and people need the anonymity to feel safe to, to seek the help. Um, which is something we should try to change. But in the meantime, if that is the case, you got to find other ways to get the people help the help they need sure. when they need it. I'm, I'm particularly excited about the the, the ChatGPT um, uh, therapists for everybody, um, which is you know <laughs> that could be a little. No, look, it's like there's a. Uh... There's like four, I read this, it's like four psychologists for every hundred thousand people. I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not a, like one-on-one -on -one therapy is not a functional scalable thing. Um, so we'll see. So coming back to AI, uh, OpenAI just put out a blog post on the heels of uh, their CEO, Sam Altman's testimony in uh, Congress saying, uh, basically putting over the idea that we need putting across the transom the idea that, quote, we need some degree of cooperation among the leading development efforts to ensure the development of super intelligence occurs in a manner that allows us to both maintain safety and help smooth integration of these systems with society, as well as um, the, I guess, proposition that, quote, we are likely to eventually need something like an IAEA for super intelligence efforts with any effort above a certain uh, capability having, you know, being subject to international authority, just like it you know, would be for making a nuclear bomb. Um, I'm curious, the idea of um, uh, sort of nuclear arms control analogies to artificial general intelligence, like what does and doesn't make sense when trying to draw that line? Well, I think regulating AI is much harder but I, I do, I liked, you know, I thought Sam's call for, you know, we need to create our own sort of ethical standards and eventually some regulatory mechanism within the United States. But then that's not enough. We're going to have to work this at the international level to make sure there are at least common norms, if not actual, you know, standards and oversight. Um, the hardest thing is, yeah, the AI is... Unlike a new, you know, set of nuclear weapons, it's not easily observable. Um, it's not, um, in many cases, not still not very explainable. You know, there's a lot of very sophisticated AI um, tools that are kind of a black box, even to the developers. They they know they work, but they don't know why or how they work, and they don't really know what the um, the negative potential um, second and third order you know, deviations can be. Um, so, so I think, I think he's on the right track. I don't know that an IAEA is exactly the right model. Um, but I do think we need to have both domestic, uh, set of standards and regulation, and then also 
um, international because right now it's just the Wild West. This, you know, com- the, the economic uh, incentives for U.S. companies right now is just get whatever you have out the door as quickly as possible so you don't lose market share and you don't lose reputation and brand. Even if you're not fully, it hasn't been fully tested and you're not fully comfortable that you know how it works and that the safety measures are in place. That is not a good dynamic, right? We need to, you know, counter that with some sense of, you know, ethics and norms and standards. Um, and then same at the, you know, the international level. Um, whether or not a chi- China or a Russia would abide by those standards is an open question, but I think having them as a normative basis for then building coalitions around that um, in response to bad behavior or bad, you know, or irresponsible uses of AI. I think that's, that's a good start. Maybe we should like give the AI community a little nuclear history lesson, Michelle. Like how um, I think I think there's this there's this sort of misunderstanding in the community that like the the sort of nuclear race between the U.S. and the Soviet Union was a static one. When in fact it was like very dynamic and like arms control kind of happened only a few times and then only under very sort of like short, like, anyways, well, why why don't you do the, um, uh, uh, the history lesson? I mean, there were some very dangerous moments in the Cold War, both um, obviously the Cuban Missile Crisis, but also accidents, um, near, you know, accidents that, that could have resulted in a nuclear exchange, um, so, you know, there was a lot of, uh, there was a bit of a Wild West dynamic early, you know, in, until things stabilized into a more um, sort of well understood by both sides um, deterrence framework, although even there, there was room for miscalculation. So you're right. In the, in the early days, it was not stable. It was not neat. The two sides didn't understand that we had very different doctrines, very different views, didn't understand each other very well, weren't communicating much. So I think the early, early period, sort of up until and maybe even through the Cuban Missile Crisis was probably the more relevant comparison to where we are today. Yeah, because I I think this is like, (laughs) this is where the analogy, um, you know, that like 1945 to maybe 1970 dynamic is is particularly apt here because like the technology is changing so fast and that was the same with nuclear weapons you know all of a sudden hydrogen bombs were a thing all of a sudden icbms were a thing and there was both sides were were spending were spending enormous amounts of uh sort of like intellectual capital money and and sort of strategic thought on trying to think out think think through just how um useful or not useful these weapons are under different under different contexts and you know we're in such early days with artificial intelligence and the um, uh, and the sort of capabilities are developing so fast that um, you know I don't I'm like uh, a little worried of swinging too far the other way where like I think actually there's an aspect of like having firms compete to make better tech is like a, a net positive um, in that you know you don't necessarily fall behind um, in in the sort of overall uh, capability dimension. Um, but, um, uh, you know, the, the idea that like two country, you know, you can make a, like a simple model and like two countries both have like a hundred nuclear weapons and can kill, uh, the other population. So then we should all, you know, sit down and see how we can get to, you know, 50 and 10 and five seems very far away from the moment that we're in now with artificial intelligence, where, um, 
you know, every two weeks there's some crazy new um, uh, breakthrough about what this stuff can do. Which is, again, why I think has some sense of, you know, where the guardrails are, what what we will, in, what is acceptable versus not, what needs additional oversight versus not. These are key questions. And, you know, I think, um, you know, we were talking about DOD before. I think the department has done a pretty good job of setting down some guidelines for its own application of AI that enforce, you know, ensuring that we, we have human judgment in the loop. Um, which is really critical. Now, again, the whole question of what do we do when our adversaries don't abide by those ethics is a, is a, is a big challenge. But I think right now the guidelines within defense are pretty, pretty clear, but it could be an interesting thing on which to, to build a more national set of standards and even internet, you know, in, you know, inject that into the international discussion too. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting sort of thinking about if and when, you know, whatever guardrails you decide to put around a technology end up becoming a competitive disadvantage and whether, you know, the trade-off in terms of whatever norm you're trying to set ends up being worth it. And, you know, you can apply this to cluster mm -hmm. munitions or lots of other technologies, not just artificial intelligence. Um, uh, how should history have a i guess we've we've kind of made the case for having history have a seat at the table um but um uh you know you mentioned in a in an interview recently with a, a former cia official that you oftentimes in 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 you know high level policy deliberations wished that um there was more um sort of historical context being placed at the um uh, um you know, placed in the in the in the briefing books that you'll uh, you know in in twenty thirty just have ChatGPT summarized for you. But um, uh, uh, I guess I'm curious, like uh, you know, if you've done any more thinking on that, like in terms of a organizational structure or books that you think have have sort of um, you've come back to that 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 offer a really good idea, you know, a really a good framework of of applying history to contemporary events. You know, I think the, to be fair, I think the intelligence community does a reasonably good job of providing historical context, understanding a country or, you know, a region and that kind of thing. Um, but what I was talking about, I, the specific example I gave was, you know, cases, historical cases of counterinsurgency and under, which there haven't been that many, but under what conditions have they succeeded? Under one, and what conditions have they failed, and and sort of coming up with some set of you know um, guideposts to judge whether a counterinsurgency approach would work in Afghanistan, for example, and only under these conditions. And if these conditions are true, great. If they're not going to be true, um, you know, like for example, most counterinsurgencies have taken more than a decade to succeed. And, you know, if the president is not willing to, you know, surge forces for a decade, then maybe you should think about another strategy. I just felt like we had a lot of um, discussion of the contemporary situation, but I wished that there was some historical analysis brought to the table. Um, and it was nobody's job to really do that because the intelligence community is very loath to 
enter into the discussion of U.S. options and what U.S. options might be better or worse because that brings them into policymaking. And so it's, it's a gap. I, whether you want to create a White House historian's office or, you know, a special senior advisory group of historians that, you know, the president can call in for specific questions that inform the discussion. I don't know how you'd structure it. I know a lot of presidents, President Obama was an avid reader of history and used to invite various historians to have dinner with him in the White House and pick their brains. But um, it is, you know, culturally, Americans love to put the past in their rearview mirror and not think that we're just moving forward. And if we have the right intent and, you know, and the can-do spirit, we can do anything. Well, some problems in the world just aren't subject to <laughs> to that approach you know they are they have so they're 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 more fundamental you know historical and cultural things that need to be considered so anyway to me that was one of the lessons learned from the experience in afghanistan that somehow we need to give more voice from from history not that it's a single voice people will have different interpretations but we need to have that to part be part of the debate uh, last one for you. So, um, you know, you were part of creating a sort of new intellectual institution um, to inform national security decision making. I'm curious, you know, why, um, why when you founded CNAS, did you think the world needed another think tank back then? And, um, you know, going forward, I guess you sort of laid, just laid out the vision for one of sort of thinking about, um, you know, bringing more history into discussions. But if, if you have any other ideas or like dreams for um, approaches that you'd hope a new um, think tank type organization could take on? Yeah, no, I think the you know, most people thought that Kurt Campbell and I were crazy to try to start another think tank and try to dissuade us. Um, we were fortunate that a few people like, you know, Bill Perry and Madeleine Albright and Rich Armitage and, um, you know, John Podesta and others you know, believed in the concept. Um, but what we, what was we were trying to do differently is, number one, you know, at the time, bipartisan think tanks were bipartisan only in the most careful sense, meaning you would have Republicans and Democrats on your board, but, you know, you'd really try not to offend anybody. Um, and we sort of thought there was, you know, at the height of the rock war, whether you were for the war or against the war, we needed a strategy for trying to end the war responsibly, you know, meeting our meeting our objectives to the extent it was possible. And that we had to go to that pain point because it was so consequential. Whereas a lot of other think tanks, it was like, oh, that's too controversial. You know, can't do that. The second thing is realizing that think tanks produce not only intellectual capital and great reports for policymakers to think over the horizon or more strategically. Um, about an issue, but one of the main products of think tanks is the people. And then what if we had a think tank that was really focused on developing the next generation of national security professionals as part of the mission and as part of the day-to-day -day focus? And that was another very, a key differentiation for CNAS at the time. And we had the Next Gen Fellows Program and all of that, which has now been copied by just about a Every other think tank, which is great because you can't have too many of these programs and imitations, the best form of flattery is in that phrase. We, we're, all, we're all very flattered that everybody else has a next-gen program now, which is great. So um, 
there was room for another think tank. CNS is now celebrating its 15th anniversary and has had um, has been very impactful, uh, especially when you consider it's small, small but mighty. <laughs> um, you know, as as someone who's interacted a lot, particularly with the junior staff over the past uh, five years, I can say, and maybe I'll, I'll take this off the show, just like I see folks coming in to you know all these different organizations who do China stuff because like young people like China talk or whatever. And like the amount of intellectual development that I see from the CNAS 23, 25 year olds after two years versus, you know, someone who's just like a, a research assistant for one person. at It's like really remarkable because they're just as smart going in. Right. It's I don't I don't think it's necessarily picking um, uh, picking folks to begin with. It's just like you just get treated like an adult. Well, I think you owe your listeners that uh, insight. So, <laughs> well, I don't want to be so mean to the other place. Anyway, all right. Um, uh, you know, so so last thing coming back to the um, uh, the sort of second part of the question: Are there other um, I don't know, dynamics that you think a think tank should try to explore or take on now? Well, I do think um, I think this question of Back to China Talk, really trying to understand the Chinese calculus and particularly the Chinese leadership calculus. Because, you know, we forget that over the course of the Cold War, a whole cottage industry of people who really tried to understand the Soviet mindset and calculus and how it differed from ours, that grew up and it was exceedingly helpful to inform policy. We don't have that same depth in terms of uh, dedicated folks across think tank land, FFRDCs, academic institutions, government, that is really, really helping us um, understand how she will make a calculation, like whether to invade Taiwan. And and I think I think that we oh you know if if an invasion of Taiwan occurs. Um, under circumstances that, in which the U.S. will respond, we should be very honest. We're in World War III involving two nuclear powers. So uh, we should all be leaning into doing everything possible to try to prevent that. And that includes developing the human capital to really provide expert, true expertise and help American policymakers understand how their Chinese counterparts think, which I'm I'm, I'm presuming maybe somewhat differently than how we might think in a similar situation. Um, you are preaching to the choir here. I've spent um, uh, a fair amount of time actually reading about Sovietology. There's a great book called Know Your Enemy. I did an in interview with the um, uh, the author. And, 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 you know, the story was in the 40s and 50s, the first, the um, Ford, Ford Foundation and Carnegie Corporation um, put up like, $50 million. Um, and then the Air Force, because they were the like, you know, hip new branch and they were doing all this fun stuff with Rand. Um, they had this um, big research effort where they interviewed all the Soviet emigres. Ostensibly, the idea was to, you know, can we like learn about Soviet society for us to like come up with more creative ideas to bomb? Um, so like if we bomb this, not that, then maybe we'll 
will have a um, uh, will, will end up, you know, figuring out how to like break their society down. But what it really ended up doing is training hundreds and hundreds of people how to speak Russian um, because they just hung out with all these emigres and or, or sort of folks who've, um, you know, folks who were kind of on the wrong side uh, or I guess kind of the right side after um, uh, after the fighting stopped in, in, in World War Two. And that hasn't happened yet. And it's 2023. Um, it's like, it's, um, uh, you know, you have these little efforts like the, like the, like China house and the state department and the, and the China mission center and the CIA. But you know, just from my little vantage point of talking to young people who are really passionate and interested in China and have invested in, in language skills or are heritage speakers and want to, um, uh, you know, want to, want to think about these issues. It's really, um, upsetting how, uh, how scarce job opportunities are to think deeply um, about these sorts of war and peace type questions, um, which, you know, um, it's not even an ounce of uh, an ounce of investment gives a pound of prevention because like people are so cheap, um, you know, um, compared to, you know, literally one fewer fighter jet could create an entire um, uh, industry of, um, uh, of, uh, of, of really great scholarship on China. Um, and it, and it breaks my heart to see people who want to do this and end up taking different paths because the jobs aren't there for them. On this idea of CNAS and bipartisanship, um, you know, as China is sort of continuing, um, to be like the one thing Republicans and Democrats can agree on. I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on like, the prospects of that, how that can be channeled in like a more or less useful way. I think I think the the growing consensus across the aisle, Democrat, Republican, and independents on the China threat or the China challenge. I I would love to see that become the basis for um, new consensus on some of the ways in which we need to invest in the drivers of our own competitiveness. So for example, um, you know, immigration policy, probably like the third rail of politics right now, one of the third rails, you just don't go there. There's not going to, you can not assume any consensus whatsoever. But if you say, look, we need to open up the channels for science and technology, STEM talent to come in from around the world, attract the best and brightest, incentivize them to stay, make their lives here, build their businesses here with the appropriate security vetting. You know, that is blood in the bloodstream of our innovation ecosystem. You know, if you look at the founders in Silicon Valley, half of them are either immigrants or first-generation Americans. Same is true for STEM talent in defense industry. So we have, we're hurting ourselves when we don't figure out how to give easy visas to, um, to people who want to come here for graduate schools and, and then help them have a fast track if they're a highly qualified STEM talent to green card and citizenship, again, with appropriate vetting. Um, that, that's, I would love to see that consensus on the China threat move into that aspect of immigration policy. Another one, trade policy. The, the biggest own goal, the biggest way that we hurt ourselves in Asia vis-a-vis -vis China was not joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which renegotiated, architected as a high standards agreement, all of our allies and partners in there. Now China wants to get in there. Um, could we come, based on the China consensus that's emerging, 
could we really examine that through the lens of competing with China as opposed to some ideology, you know, about, you know, is free trade good or bad and, and so forth? Um, so I, you know, the question I have is, can you take the threat, the agreement around the threat and move it into some of these areas that would be really strategic for us as a nation if we could come together, much as we have come together on things like investing in Chipsack and, you know, onshoring some of our semiconductor industry. Thank you so much for being a part of China. All right. Thank you. Tell you a little something about the money, honey. <laughs> All right. Well, I'd be doggone if I wouldn't work all day, baby. I am.